Hey, 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 thank you so much for joining us for our Big Time Talker podcast. Burke Allen here broadcasting live today from the studios of Shenandoah University. We're in the conservatory in the Blue Room studio. Thanks to the gang at Shenandoah for throwing a studio our way so we could talk with my pal, Dr. Andrew Wilner, who's zooming in from his palatial estate in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Wilner, the author of several books, including The Locum Life. It's a physician's guide the locum tenens, whatever that is, we'll ask him. Um, and, and he's an interesting cat. He also hosts his own podcast called NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD.com. And he's all about something called the art of medicine. So let's start with that. Andrew, good to talk to you. What is the art of medicine? Brooke, thanks for uh, inviting me. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. Yeah, the art of medicine. E ever since I was young, I've been interested in what makes people tick? And in fact, when when I applied to medical school and an interviewer asked me, well, so why do you want to be a doctor? And of course, the standard response at that time was, well, I want to help people. I want to do good in the world. And I said, well, I really want to understand what makes people tick so I can be a better writer. And uh, I didn't get accepted. <laughs> Yeah, that's not probably the, the right answer, because I'm guessing at this point, the guy's thinking, well, this this kid, he doesn't really want to help people. He's not interested in that. And that's not what you meant at all, I hope. It's not what I meant. Um, I guess deep down, I realized that if you really want to help people, you have to understand them. And uh, since then, now, there's been a big movement. In fact, I'm going to interview someone for my podcast, The Art of Medicine with Dr. Andrew Wilner, about narrative medicine, which has become since 2001, a thing. Somebody wrote a textbook on narrative medicine, formalizing the idea. Now, just to put this in perspective, I applied to medical school in 1976. So now it, it took until 2001 before the uh, establishment sort of was notified that the humanities that telling a story, that listening to a patient's story, and that writing a story, and that for physicians to write stories about their lives, their feelings, about their patients was very, very important. Now, of course, this has happened for centuries, but it only recently became formalized, and it's known as narrative medicine. And I think that's kind of what I was on to, you know, at the tender age of, uh, I guess I must have been about 21. Uh, and I certainly wasn't very sophisticated in the in the interview uh, world. Uh, ultimately, uh, I did get into medical school. And that's why I'm an associate professor of uh, neurology these days. Uh, but it was a circuitous course. I studied in France for two years. Uh, in medicine and learned to speak fluent French. And then I transferred to Brown University and graduated and then had a little more traditional uh, residency training in both internal medicine for three years, neurology for three years, epilepsy fellowship for one year. And I did a year of uh, ER also. So I collected quite a few stories and, and I think I did help some people along the way. I think that's an important part of uh, being a physician, but for me, it like it it almost goes without saying, right? It's like, and sometimes now I'll even say it when I'm with a patient and it's complicated. Say, you know, I'm here to help you. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do. And, uh, 
you know, let's let's do that. So I think the art of medicine, uh, you know, we have a lot of science now that we didn't have 50 years ago, and that helps enormously. But we're still dealing with human beings and human beings are unbelievably complex creatures. Uh, I treat epilepsy patients, for example, and one of the biggest problems is that many patients don't take their medications. And yeah, it's like, yeah. how can that possibly be, right? I mean, how can the medicine work if you don't take them? Well, why don't you take medicine? Well, there's a long, long, long list of kind of human factors why people don't take their medications. Doesn't make them feel good, can't afford them, can't remember, they don't do anything anyway. You know, I don't trust them. And yet, if they want to achieve their goal, which is to not have seizures or control hypertension or diet or whatever it is, obviously, obviously, right? The first step is have to take the medication. And yet that's sure. a huge hurdle. And I, and I think that speaks to the complexity of human beings. And I think that's what narrative medicine, and that's why my podcast is titled The Art of Medicine, because I think uh, you can't forget about that. Even though you must have, uh, and I am a scientist, you must have the science, but the art of medicine is important too. For a guy like you who knows a lot of stuff, and I've learned today that you know a lot of stuff in French too. Um, one of the things that I like the most about Dr. Wilner is that, Andrew, you don't talk over my head. You don't seem to talk over your patients' heads. Um, I wonder how tough it is for you, because you're so immersed into it, to not get hung up on the medical jargon. And as they used to say back home in West Virginia, where I grew up, the big 50 cent words. Is that a, a, something that you have to, to mentally sort of steal yourself when you walk in with a patient and go, you know, I'm not going to talk over their head. That's not going to happen. How do you do it? Well, you know, uh, I, I do a lot of public speaking and I've been doing public speaking for many, many years. And when you go to public speaking class 101 and they teach you to be a public speaker, they right. say, number one. Who is your audience? Who are you talking to? And you have to know, am I talking to physicians? Am I talking to lay people? Uh, my first book, Epilepsy, 199 Answers, was written for patients and their families. Uh, I've written other books for physicians. I write technical journal articles. I, I don't find that that's difficult. I think the important thing is, is for me to know who am I speaking with? And sometimes I'll even ask if a family member in the room seems to, seems to be responding with medical jargon to me, I'll say, oh, are, are you a healthcare professional? You know, are you a nurse? Are you a physician? So then I can switch you know, my, my vocabulary. But the whole point of communication it's for the other person to understand you. So there, there's no value in using uh, 50 cent words if they're if they're not going to land, you know, where you where you aim them. So so frankly, I don't think about that. I think it's automatic. Good for you. You know, you, you talk about a lot of interesting you know, medical things on your podcast on the art of medicine. Are you still doing the other one on Reach MD? Is that still a thing too? Yes. Now Reach MD owns that one, and and I'll be doing one this week actually. And those are fun because sometimes we do book reviews about neuroscience, or right. they find a neuroscientist, and and I host that, so I'll prepare for that, and then kind of like what you do, Burke. You know, uh, I'll read up on it and sort of become a a quick expert on the topic, so I can ask uh, important questions. But the art of medicine. 
Madison. Uh, that's my own podcast, and I host it, produce it, edit it, I schedule it. Uh, that's a 100% uh, in-house uh, operation. So I, the, the beauty of that is I can invite whoever I want. <laughs> <laughs> you come in, you not so much. Well, you make an interesting point in that there is so much information available online now to patients that was never there before. So when you started medical school in you know, the mid 70s, late 70s, you couldn't go to WebMD or Healthline, or a gazillion other websites, and source all this stuff. And now, you know, patients, the first thing you do, well, the first thing you do, even if it's not medicine, if you're looking for a parking space, you Google it, right? You know, what what restaurant you want to go to when you're out of town, you Google it. So when all these patients, uh, Dr. Wilner, self-diagnose, um, and they get in there, and they begin to question doctor's advice, and and all that, in your opinion, is that flood of information that is available to all of us now on our phones, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Does it do more <laughs> harm than good, generally speaking, when you're in there with a the patient trying to get stuff done? Rick, that's a great question. And it's very, very complicated scenario. First, my first book I mentioned earlier was 1996, Epilepsy 199 Answers. And I wrote that because my patients could not get information. Right. That was hard. It was an FAQ book, 199 answers. There were literally questions and answers. And that's the kind of thing you would find immediately on the internet in, in two seconds yep. uh, these days. So the the problem now has shifted from not being able to get information to being able to get too much information. You know, a Google search, there's more than you could read in your whole lifetime. And then, of course, how do you assess the value of that information? Sure. And, I, and I think, you know, what is it credible? So, uh, you know, the first thing you do is, you know, look for a brand name. Is it Cleveland Clinic, you know, Mayo Clinic? If it's just some random Google. So I would say in my own practice, I have not found that kind of information very helpful for patients. Uh, it, what I want is the, is what the, the psychiatrist term, a therapeutic alliance. I want to make a connection with the patient, and then we should be a physician-patient team working together to solve the problem. I talked about uh, seizure medications earlier. So we should be on the same page. I'm telling you that these medicines will help you, and you should say, oh, Dr. Wilner, what else do I need to know? Because if you Google, you're going to get a lot of scary information that may not be properly vetted. You know, I've been shocked in my practice. I had a patient come to me. Oh, doctor, I read about this new medication in the newspaper. You know, can, can, can you do you know about that? And it's like, well, that's kind of insulting. It's like, of course, I know about that. I mean, I knew about that long before, you know, it ended up in The New York Times. Right. That's not how I get my information. So I think patients don't realize the sort of the scholarship involved in in being a physician. I mean, I have patients tell me, oh, I researched, you know, I did a literature search. I researched this. I'm an expert on this now. Well, what does that mean? It's like 10 minutes on Google. Well, <laughs> you know, it's it's like three weeks of reading all day long every day, you know, based on my, you know, medical training, not really comparing apples to, to apples. So I think it's great that information is available. 
I think the problem is it's often not uh, vetted. And also you have to be, you know, I read stuff. I don't know anything about finance, right? So, uh, but like everybody else, you know, you have to make uh, ends meet at the end of the day. So I try and read finance articles. And- uh, Your high school is over, don't they? I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. I don't know the vocabulary. And also I can't read between the lines. And I think, and that's what you can do when you're trained, you know, when you're a physician, you go through medical school and years and years of residency and you've been in practice and you see a lab report say, oh, this may be X, Y, and Z. It's like, oh, that's just boilerplate. He's just putting that in there, you know, because yes, it may be X, Y, and Z, but he doesn't really think it is. Whereas, you know, if I didn't have 40 years of training behind me, I would say, oh, it could be X, Y, and Z. I better follow up on those. So I think you need the sophistication to read between the lines and your average person, you know, doesn't have that. Have you seen an uptick in armchair quarterbacking as the years have gone on? Is this a, a, a bigger thing now? Oh yeah, I think for sure, for sure. And, uh, and I think it's actually getting harder and harder to be an informed consumer. Uh, I have a friend who uh, was just diagnosed with uh, metastatic melanoma, and he's my best friend. And that's a little outside my area of expertise. So I figured, you know, I, I, I want to learn about that. How, what can I offer him? You know, how can I help him? And it's really deep. You know, it's it's not finance. I mean, I know enough to read the articles and get a feel for them, but I sure can't read between the lines. And they're talking about extended survival with immunotherapy and, you know, vaccines and all kinds of incredibly exciting stuff. But it's like, well, what does this mean for my buddy who's in the hospital today? And and I don't know. And and I know a lot of medicine and I don't know. So. I think it's getting more, you know, as the depth of our knowledge increases, I think it's more and more inaccessible, you know, to anyone who's not an expert. Dr. Andrew Wilner is our guest today. He's uh, based in Memphis, Tennessee, but he spent a lot of time as something called a locum tenens physician, which I, to me, that sounds like you know, either you were breaking a law um, or perhaps you had an exotic tropical disease. But in fact, what that means, as I understand it, is that you would zip around all over the country and do short-term stints in communities, sort of like a travel nurse. Is that correct? Just for you, Burke. Uh, so you can see the... <laughs> there it is, the locum life. That's exactly right. And I did a lot of zipping. Uh around because uh, I, I the example I use is like a substitute teacher, right. you know, for a variety of reasons, your teacher in sixth grade, you know, maybe she needs time off to, to have a baby or, uh, you know, is is on vacation and, you know, you're you're going to class. Well, at the hospital or the clinic, you know, if a doctor is away, they want a replacement. And it it turns out the medical bureaucracy bureaucracy makes it very, very difficult to get doctors hired quickly. Okay. I work in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, let's suppose I see a very appealing job in uh, Kentucky, right? So, uh, and, and I hope my employers are listening. So if I had this great <laughs> offer and so I meet with them and they say, okay, Dr. Willards, well, 
So we hammer out a contract. They said, we want you to start tomorrow. This is great. Well, first of all, I just out of politeness and legal requirement, I have to give a certain amount of notice, right, to my current job, minimum of 90 days and probably more. Then I need to get a Kentucky license. It took me almost a year to get my Tennessee medical license because you got to go back and do a test for every state. You don't have to do that, do you? Well, that's kind of the irony. You know, if you had to take a test, I could see why it should be such a demanding process because you really, but there is no test. It's just a matter of providing your credentials and going through the bureaucracy. And, uh, but they want, you know, original diplomas and a record of every place you've ever worked in your entire life with attestation. So that process can take months and months and months. So the bottom line is if, if a clinic has a physician who retires and they identify a person to replace them, it could take a year before that person could actually even start. So all of a sudden there's a need for somebody who can drop in and hold the place. That's what locum tenens means. Locum is a place and tenens means hold. To hold the place until a permanent physicians can show up. And uh, it's become increased as the physician shortage increases, the need for temporary physicians to hold these places has also been increasing. So I can see this being a good thing because, you know, I grew up in a small town back in West Virginia, you know, very rural medicine, really hard to get doctors to move there and relocate their families there. Um, But I can also see it uh, going horribly sideways, sort of going back to your whole premise of the art of medicine and a narrative of a doctor's life. And, you know, your doctor knows you from the second you pop out of mom until he retires or you move to a different city. So you you have no background with these people when you parachute into Pig Knuckle, Arkansas. You know nothing about them. And then suddenly you've got to be the guy with the answers. To me, that seems like you, you got a target on your back to get it right all the time. Very insightful, Burke. The uh, One of the reasons that locum tenens is growing is, of course, the doctor shortage, but also many physicians, you've heard of physician burnout, right? They're oh, yeah. unhappy with their traditional employment. And so one way to sort of escape and an unhappy employment situation is to become a temporary worker. So it's a great outlet for physicians. And I speak about it quite often. I've, I've sort of developed a reputation as a knowledgeable person about that because of my book. And I've been doing it off and on since uh, 1982. Right. But on the other hand, I don't see it as a good thing (laughs) for the, Hell for the patient of the population. It's not that locum tenens, you know, if somebody comes in with pneumonia, whether you know their life history or not, you're going to treat them in a very similar way. Uh, I don't think patients suffer because of it, but you do lose. Uh, I talked earlier about connection. Very hard to make uh, instantaneous connections uh, with uh, everyone. And the prior model of having a physician for your whole life course that has been sort of attacked at a number of different levels so it's becoming less and less common because of insurance networks uh and uh, a lot of other reasons that have prevented sort of a 
solo physicians. One of the key statistics I found when I was reading writing my book, say I think 2016 was the first year ever that more than half of the physicians in the United States became employees. So, you know, your life as an employee is very, very different than your life as a employee. You know, and physicians traditionally were self-employed, right? They hang up a shingle, they have an office, they rent it, they, you know, lease it, they own it, you know, they hire their own staff, they run the business 24-7. Well, that model is evaporating for a lot of reasons. Uh, but that model was good for physicians and it was good for patients and the replacement model where, you know, it's sort of <laughs> back to finance. You know, every time I call, I find it, my bank, I get a different person, right? Yeah. I'm lucky if I get a person at all, but if I do get a person, it's a different person. They say, Oh, it's okay. We have your notes. It's like, really? Yeah. They, you want a banker. You want your own car mechanic. You want the yes. same guy to uh, the same pharmacist, right? That's so, right. so you know a lot about this, but for the patient, it's not necessarily a good thing to have a rotating wheel of doctors. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think as a patient, my advice would be uh, don't assume that your new doctor, even in a large group, you may have an obstetrician that you see, you know, regularly when you're pregnant, but then one day somebody else shows up and because that other doctor is on vacation or away or sick or in an emergency. And that's not a bad thing. It's great that someone shows up, but don't assume that that person knows every little thing about you because uh, that's just impossible. So be your own self advocate when you come to your physician and don't just say, oh, it's in the chart. I'm sure he knows. No, no, no. <laughs> you want to make, just reinforce that uh, new connection. Give me one story, one story about some town somewhere that you went into. Give me your pig knuckle Arkansas story. Ah, uh, let's see. So, so, <laughs> so many, so many stories. Uh, well, you know, I'll, I'll tell one, you know, locum tenens physicians comes from, comes from all over. And I went to South Dakota and there was another locums guy there. And I remember we were having lunch and we were chatting and he was talking about how his institution was great, you know, and he had trained at this big institution. It was so It was so much better than the one that he got dumped in as a locums where he was just coming to make some extra money. And I, I thought that was sort of an odd way to present yourself, but but he was very, very keen. on Well, I never saw him again. He, he vanished. So I always see locums as, as an opportunity. You know, I'm the happiest guy in the world when I do a locums assignment because it, it's a privilege. It's an invitation. You know, I'm in a new place, new people, new patients. It's a wonderful uh, opportunity. And I think most most locums physicians uh uh, feel the same way, but it is stressful because it's a, a new spot. You know, you don't yeah. know where, where's the cafeteria? Where do I park? Where's the men's room? You know, there's a whole lot of first day kind of uh, jitters that, and when you're going to new places, you know, all the time, it's, that's a lot of, a lot of first day. So it's not easy for the, for the doctor uh, either, I guess would be, would, would be that story. Andrew Wilner is our guest. He is an author, a podcaster. His podcast is The Art of Medicine. His other podcast is Neurofrontiers. You can find that at reachmd.com. And he's got a whole bunch of books out there, including this book about his uh, being a doc on the road. 
called the locum life. All right, I'm going to throw a couple of medical things out at you, get your take on them here, uh, things that are in the news. These new Hollywood diet drugs, everybody talking about them. Well, Gobi, uh, I think there's one called Rajaro, um, uh, Ozempic, where apparently these people can, um, you know, take this totally suppresses the appetite. Nothing like it before, but they cost somewhere north of a car payment just to get, you know, 20 pills. Uh, and that's keeping a lot of people away from them. What what do you know about these? Are these really miracle weight loss drugs? Because everybody is all about it. Well, a disclaimer, I don't know much about weight loss drugs. It's not my area of expertise. Oh, come on. But I have lived long enough now. <laughs> birthday coming up soon. That <laughs> there's been so many miracle drugs, right? Yeah. Not one of them has panned out. So uh, not one ever. What I would say that everything you need to know about, I'm kind of on the sort of healthy lifestyle track. And I think everything you need to know about weight loss and diet is your mother already told you. That would be my advice. You need to eat the right things, not too much. You need to exercise, get enough sleep and a little self-discipline terms of you know choo making healthy choices right there's even uh, i used to eat when i was single i used to eat a lot of uh, microwave food there was one called healthy choice so <laughs> and the portions were you know minuscule but uh, you know that that worked so there has also never been a medication even aspirin that's been invented that does not have adverse events you know aspirin can cause bleeding in the stomach uh, it can cause allergic reactions. It affects your platelets. It does all kinds. You say, well, it's just an aspirin. So I just can't imagine how something that suppresses your appetite, and it may well do that, uh, isn't going to be doing other stuff That's not that, good. that you may not want it to do. So I would be the last one to sort of to take, you know, even though it would be great to like eat all the cake you want, then take a pill, you know. That just never really works. <laughs> Dr. Wilner is like, I can hear my mother in the back of my head saying, Burke, make good choices. Make good choices. That's right. All right. I just got back from uh, a wonderful week in Florida. Uh, and on every street corner, and, and I understand this is sort of an all over the country thing now, there's a new medical marijuana shop. They're <laughs> everywhere. It's a thing. It, you know, there are more of those than Dollar Generals in the Deep South. And, uh, you know, anecdotal evidence is that medical marijuana, you know, takes care of a number of ailments and makes the world better. Uh, real world, I'm hearing that it's pretty easy for anyone off the street with a hangnail to get a medical marijuana card. So what say you to the, the huge influx of legal pot. It's bad. So oh, this, wow. Okay. This is, right something, there. this is something I know a little bit more about because mar marijuana, well, first of all, marijuana does relax people. No question about it. And it is good for nausea. And there, there is an FDA approved marijuana based product for people that are, you know, getting chemotherapy and right. vomiting. And it helps for that. 
but I learned a little bit about it because there is one product approved for epilepsy. And this is for children with uh, two very unusual and very severe syndromes called Lennox-Gesto and Dravet syndrome and, uh, and seizures also associated with tuberous sclerosis who just have so many, I mean, daily seizures, multiple seizures, multiple kinds of seizures. And it turns out that a cannabidiol, a derivative of marijuana can help control, not 100%, very, very rare, but improve the situation. And that's wonderful. On the other hand, it can have many, many side effects in these children, like stomach upset and diarrhea and a lot of other problems. So I treat many people with epilepsy and I'm often asked, well, what about, what about me? You know, I don't fit that in that category, but uh, isn't, why wouldn't marijuana be good for all kinds of epilepsy? So, so that's been studied. And the last study that I read showed that not only did it not control the seizures, it made them worse. Oh, really? Uh, It made them worse. So marijuana is a very complex, you know, substance with lots and lots of psychoactive. I mean, if you think something that you take that you smoke or swallow is going to alter your ability to think, it's going to alter your appetite sometimes, right? And there's also been studies shown that adolescents, right? So what we know about the brain is that your brain is not fully formed, it's not fully formed until you're about 20. It's like, really? It's like, really? That there are connections being made. There's myelin being laid down. It's not done. This is a long process. So that explains a lot of adolescent behavior, right? With impulse control, poor decision-making, the frontal lobes, which is where we, where we make our decisions. Uh, it's not done yet. So what happens when you introduce a drug? Well, it turns out that according to one paper, the incidence of psychosis three times greater in chronic marijuana smokers who in teenagers than controls. Well, that sounds really bad to me. So, you know, the FDA goes through very rigorous process with new drugs and many new drugs don't make it. I don't think people realize that, that, you know, pharmaceutical companies you know, for every drug that actually gets FDA approval, they've probably got anywhere from 10 to a thousand that they tried. And for one reason or another, either it didn't work or the side effects so outweighed, you know, the good effect that yep. it just couldn't use it. So medical marijuana has not been subjected to that kind of rigor. And uh, I am not a fan. Uh, people like it. It's kind of fun. But uh, from a medical point of view, uh, medical marijuana is not even an appropriate term. You know, there's like no such thing, except for the, with the few exceptions that I noted earlier for nausea and vomiting and chemotherapy and specific seizure types. Uh, very, very uh, limited. Uh, I would not recommend it, you know, maybe as a last resort kind of thing, but it's not tested. Uh, you don't know what you're taking. Uh, it. I saw a headline the other day that, oh, yes, marijuana can be addictive. He was, oh, it's not addictive. Well, yes, it can be. It's not good for you. It doesn't go with my philosophy of uh, healthy living. And of course, smoking isn't good for you. So, you, you know, cigarettes are bad. Marijuana, smoking marijuana is also 
bad. All right. So we put that in the Wilner no bueno category, medical marijuana. Yes. Now, I'm sure there'll be those who disagree, but uh, this is your podcast, right? It's my opinion. <laughs> so that's Life just, my, goes on. just my opinion. Another big story that that is in the news constantly, and we all know this is bad, is this this fentanyl issue that is is ripping through big cities and small towns and every nook and cranny of this country and probably about another hundred countries around the world to the point where I had to have a conversation with my son, who's a senior in high school to say, look, if you know, if you get a headache, don't take a Tylenol from another kid. Wait till you get home. Cause you just don't know what's what out there. What from a medical standpoint can be done uh, about this influx of this medication. Look, I know you're not a pharmacist. And the last I checked, you didn't work for the DEA, but certainly you've got to have an opinion on something as deadly as fentanyl. And as a secondary question, was there ever a a, a valid medical reason for this drug in the first place? Oh, sure. Uh, we, we use it in the hospital. I think it would be rare not to use it uh, in the hospital i mean it's it's a pretty strong uh, painkiller and uh, so you guys use this when people what break an arm they have severe cancer what what is a medical use for fentanyl fentanyl well i know it's used in the intensive care unit okay um i think it's sort of part of like you know sedation and anesthesia i never prescribe it it should not be used on the street and you know the concept that you would you know (laughs) There's so people are so conscious about what they eat. Oh, I'm not going to eat that. You know, it has gluten, but they'd be willing to take a pill from somebody, you know, off the street with no label, no packaging and swallow it. It's like, what are you thinking? Yeah. So, you know, maybe education is, is part of the, uh, the answer, but it's terrible. You know, please don't take anything that isn't prescribed by a physician. And when the physician prescribes it, ask about it so that you are educated and know and lock it up. One, it turns out that one of the big sources for uh, narcotic overdoses are prescribed narcotics from a family member. So you got a teenager in the house and uh, you know, Talk to them about it. And make sure that these things aren't. You remember the childproof? <laughs> we need, the caps. Teen- yeah, we yeah. need teenager and young adult proof, uh, and also older adults. You know, <laughs> I would be one of those. Yes, and you know, you don't you don't want to be uh, exposed to things like that. Not, not, uh, not a good thing. Doctor Wilner has a great podcast called "The Art of Medicine." It's available wherever podcasts are. Uh, just like this with the Big Time Talker podcast. You can find us both on Spotify and iHeartMedia. And uh, the list goes on and on. New episodes on the regular. Dr. Wilner, great to talk to you. Thanks for being here. Burke, it was a real pleasure as always. Thank you. That is Dr. Andrew Wilner. He may parachute into your town, show up bedside at the hospital or the doctor's office. Because he is one of those guys that does that. And if, if you happen to be in uh, in Memphis, you may run into him as well. You like that Elvis movie, by the way? Do you approve of that? Well, anything about Elvis has to be terrific. All right, good. You're a Memphis guy, I had to ask. Dr. Andrew Wilner on the Big Time Talker podcast. Thank you so much for being here. We have new episodes every Tuesday. We hope you download every dag on one of them. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. If you don't like what you hear, 
Tell a friend that you like what you heard. I'm Burke Allen. Thank you, Shenandoah University and the Conservatory here in beautiful Winchester, Virginia, for hosting the podcast today. Thanks for being here. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.